Church, having right expectations is critical for so many aspects of life. And I'll start by giving this example. Take March Madness. A number of you are, are doing the uh, Redeemer Rivals March Madness Tournament Challenge, whatever you want to call it. But uh, I'm at the very bottom of the standings right now uh, because I chose a highly seated team to be a lowly seated team and and I chose a lowly seated team to beat a highly seated team and I was wrong on both of those fronts but every year there are a few highly seated teams in this college basketball tournament that lose to teams they have no business losing to now usually when this happens the higher seated team represents a large school with a lot of money at its disposable future professionals playing for them the lower seated team on the other hand has usually not much money not much media attention no, no real t- talent on the court, <laughs> and, and yet, why do the higher-seeded teams lose in those situations? It's all about their expectations, right? They, they go in thinking, we got this. They go in thinking about their next opponent before they play the one that's right in front of them, and, and, and when they do that, they're in a prime position to fall. They have these wrong expectations as they come into the game, and their opponent uh, takes advantage of that, and it leads to their own failure to win. We see it all the time. In a more serious way, we see this play out in marriage as well. Having red expectations is critical for marriage. Here's what happens. You're dating someone. You have a great time together. You fall in love, and you get married, expecting that that same experience is just going to continue on forever. But once you're actually married, it doesn't take long to realize that romantic feelings and shared interests that make dating so enjoyable aren't strong enough for the new challenges of two sinful people seeking to share life together. Often people forsake the marriage at this point. Why? Because it's not what they signed up for. Their expectations were wrong to begin with. Having right expectations is critical if we're going to navigate through life. When we read through the Gospels, it becomes clear that Jesus' disciples had some wrong expectations as well. Now they had left everything to follow Jesus because they believed that he was the promised Messiah, and they, they believed he was the one that's going to bring in the promised kingdom of God. However, they shared the assumptions of the people in general about the kind of Messiah to look for and the way that this Messiah would establish God's kingdom. They believed the Messiah was going to be a conquering king who would bring judgment on their enemies and would establish the kingdom of God in power. And this is what they were looking for Jesus to do. As we'll see, these expectations did not line up with the way Jesus would actually bring in the kingdom. Today, we're still prone to having wrong expectations about the kingdom of God. You know, you hear Christians talk about building the kingdom, advancing the kingdom, doing kingdom work, bringing in the kingdom, and more. Some of this work takes the form of social movements. Sometimes it gets intertwined with political strategies. Sometimes it has to do with evangelism or missions, but there's obviously much confusion today about what is, it, what is the kingdom of God and, 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 and how does it come and, and what does that look like for us? To clarify where that confusion exists, let me put it this way. When we pray what Jesus teaches us to pray, your kingdom come, when we pray that prayer, what do we expect to see? When we pray your kingdom come, What do we expect to see happen? What are our expectations for how that prayer will be answered? 
You can open your Bibles to Matthew 13 if you haven't already. We are continuing our series through the Gospel of Matthew called Following the Fulfillment. And right now we are looking at a chapter that's filled with the parables of Jesus. A few weeks ago we began looking at this chapter and the parables. And we gave this definition to a parable. What is a parable? A parable is an illustration that uses familiar things from this world to teach mysterious truths about God's kingdom. So the parable is, it's an illustration that uses something familiar to us to teach something mysterious about God's kingdom. Sometimes these are stories, sometimes they're just an image or a picture, sometimes they're long, sometimes they're short, sometimes they have one point, sometimes they have multiple points, but what all the parables have in common is that they use familiar themes and Im- images to us here on earth to teach mysterious truths about the kingdom of God. A few weeks ago, the first parable we looked at taught on the mystery of who responds to the word of the kingdom. We saw that the sower went out to sow, and, and, and he sowed in many different soils, and we saw the different responses to the word of the kingdom and the mystery of why do people respond differently. Well, this morning we're going to look at the next three parables in Matthew, which all teach on the mystery of how the kingdom comes. How the kingdom comes. Our passage is Matthew 13, verses 24 through 43. Matthew 13, verses 24 through 43. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, do you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed, that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. Then he left the crowds and went into the house. And his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parables of the weeds of the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. There are three parts of this passage we're going to see this morning. The parables Jesus told the reason Jesus told them, and the explanation Jesus gave. So first, the parables Jesus told. Second, the reason Jesus told them. And third, the explanation Jesus gave. 
And so let's just begin by looking at the parables that Jesus told. We need to remember the setting. Jesus is on a boat speaking to the crowds of people who have come to him. They're listening from the beach, and he's speaking to them in parables. And here we have three parables that all begin with the phrase, the kingdom of heaven is like. Again, these are familiar illustrations that teach mysterious truths about the kingdom of God. So first, the parable of the wheat. Look at verses 24 and 25. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So like the first parable in this chapter, again, Jesus tells a story about a man sowing seed. But we need to understand at the outset that these are different parables, similar details, but distinct differences as well. So, so this man is a farmer. And he sowed wheat in his field. This is his field that he owns. And he's farming. He's he's sowing seed in it. And this man has an enemy. This man has a rival. Maybe it's another farmer who doesn't want this man to have a productive crop. And so this rival, during the night, sneaks into this man's field, seeking to sabotage the crop. He sows weeds all throughout the field in an effort to destroy what the farmer has done. That's how the parable begins. Look at verses 26 and following. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? So after some time passes and growth begins to occur, what do the servants discover in the field? Both wheat and weeds. And they, they go to the farmer and they ask, what, what's going on? He'd planted good seed in this field. Now there's, now there's weeds as well. And the farmer knows immediately who's done this. His enemy has done this. And in their genuine desire to help, they say, well, should we go gather the weeds? Should, should, we, should we uproot the weeds so that they're not there anymore? Now, the only problem with this suggestion is that because the weeds and the wheat were sown together, their roots are going to be entangled together. So if the servants were to try and remove the weeds, they would likely destroy the whole crop. Now this is probably the enemy's very intention, to destroy the farmer's crop by entangling the wheat with the weeds and and then the farmer being forced to pull it all out. But, But here's the thing, this is a good farmer. This farmer knows his stuff. And so look at how he responds. He said in verse 29, No less than gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and at harvest time I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. The farmer refuses to endanger the wheat that he's planted by trying to pull up the weeds prematurely. He won't do that. Instead, he allows the weeds to grow alongside the wheat until it's time to harvest the crop. And when that time comes, he says, then his reapers will be able to safely separate the two. They'll gather the weeds into bundles and burn them up, and they will gather the wheat into the barn. So because the farmer is a good and wise farmer, the enemy's attempt to sabotage his crop fails miserably. And Jesus says, this is what the kingdom of heaven is like. That's the first parable Jesus told. It's the longest of the three. The next two are much shorter. It's still full of meaning. The parable of the mustard seed. Let's read it again, verses 31 and 32. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It's the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. 
So once again, we have a man sowing a seed. Once again, this is a distinct parable from the previous one. This parable focuses on the size of the seed itself. In this case, it's a mustard seed. Now, Jesus calls it the smallest of all seeds, and we should know this is not a technical statement. It's, it's, it's a proverbial statement. Like if you're talking about NBA players, and, 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 and uh, Steph Curry is the smallest of players. He might not be, he's not Muggsy Bogues, he's not the shortest ever, but he's, he's very small, right? That's, that, that's the point. It's, it's, it's a proverbial statement that mustard seeds were known for their smallness. And it's really a simple picture. This small seed that the farmer plants grows larger than all the other plants in the garden all the way to the size of a tree, large enough that it becomes a refuge for the birds of the air to make nests in. And Jesus says this is what the kingdom of heaven is like. The third parable in this section is the parable of the leaven. Short and simple. He told them another parable in verse 33. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. A few things to observe about this little parable. First, leaven is often associated with evil in the Bible, but that is not always the case. And there's no reason to think that this is the case here. He's not saying the kingdom of heaven is like evil, right? There's no, we, don't, we don't need to go there with this parable. Sometimes Jesus would use a surprising image to, to really just set people off guard in, in terms of what they were expecting to hear. And so he, he uses leaven not because he's trying to represent evil with leaven, we also need to observe the amount of flour. We hear three measures of flour, and, and I read that and not knowing anything about anything with baking at all. Uh, I, I think, like, is that three cups of flour? But in actuality, it's more like 40 pounds of flour. This is a seriously large amount of flour we are talking about here. Now, what's the point of the parable? Again, it's very simple. A little leaven has the ability to permeate through a large amount of flour. And Jesus says this is what the kingdom of heaven is like. These are the parables about the kingdom that Jesus told the crowds from the boat. But before we discuss what they mean, Matthew wants to remind us of the reason that Jesus told parables. So that's the second part of the message today, the reason Jesus told these parables. Verses 34 and 35, Matthew tells us the reason. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. So Matthew tells us first that Jesus would only speak to the crowds in parables. And again, this is significant because it shows that the parables are not quite the same thing as what we might think of as like a sermon illustration, right? When I give an illustration in a sermon... I go on to explain what the illustration means. I'm, I'm trying to, to bring understanding. I'm going I'm to tell you, here's why I said that illustration. But Jesus didn't do that with the crowds. That's the reason I didn't just do it as we went here now. This is, this is what Jesus said, and it's all Jesus said to the crowds. He, 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 he gave these parables and nothing more. Why did Jesus do this? According to Matthew, Jesus did this for the same reason that Jesus did everything, which was to fulfill the scriptures, to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. Every single aspect of his life and ministry was a fulfillment of the scriptures. He came to be the fulfillment of the scriptures. Now, often this fulfillment takes the form of Jesus carrying out a role of a key Old Testament figure. So we've seen some things in Matthew already through the last few months. We've seen Jesus as the true and better Moses who delivers his people from slavery. He's the true and better David 
the shepherd king. He's the true and better Solomon. He's the true and better Jonah. But I'm going to guess that you've never thought of Jesus the way Matthew is about to present him here. I haven't until this week. Jesus, in this passage, is the true and better Asaph. The true and better Asaph. Now, really, raise your hand if you've ever thought of Jesus that way. Okay, I hadn't either, all right? So, so we're learning together. The true and better Asaph. Asaph, we read a psalm from earlier, is one of the chief musicians of Israel during the time of King David. He was, he was a worship leader in Israel, essentially. And we have actually been reading lately in our services from the section in the book of Psalms that he's responsible for, the, the, that middle section of the Psalm 73 and following. Now, as a writer of Psalms that are inspired scripture, Asaph is a prophet. He's considered a prophet. And Matthew tells us here that Jesus, in teaching parables, fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Asaph in Psalm 78. So I want to turn back there this morning. Let's turn back to Psalm 78 for a moment so we can see what Matthew was saying because our tendency is to think Matthew just did a cross-reference for the word parable and said, oh, parable, okay, there we go. Jesus fulfilled that, parables. No, there's more going on than just looking for the word parable in the Old Testament. How did Jesus fulfill what's happening in Psalm 78? Let's look at it together. Psalm 78 opens with these words, Give ear, O people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old. So Asaph's beginning the psalm. He's speaking to Israel. He's speaking to the people of Israel. He's calling them to listen. And he tells them, I'm going to give a parable. I'm going to open my mouth in a parable. I'm going to reveal, he says, dark truths, mysterious sayings, things that haven't been understood before. Now, what we'd expect at this point, based on our definition of parable, is, is a story, uh, an illustration of some sort. But what's surprising, if you keep reading this very lengthy psalm, is that the story Asaph goes on to give is actually the history of God's dealings with Israel. The story he gives is Israel's story. And he says in verse 4, he says, The glorious deeds of the Lord and his might, the wonders that he has done. And then for the rest of the psalm, Asaph goes through the actual history of God's work for Israel and Israel's response up to this point. And here's just the broad strokes of what Asaph covers. Just, just listen to the, the rhythm of this psalm. He, he, this is what he goes into. God's deliverance from Egypt, Israel's unbelief and rebellion. God's provision in the wilderness, Israel's unbelief and rebellion. God's conquest of the promised land, Israel's unbelief and rebellion. And finally, the psalm ends by highlighting God's provision of David to be Israel's shepherd king. This is what Psalm 78 does. This is the parable that Asaph gives. Now, this doesn't really seem like a parable, right? It just seems like history. But here's why this functions as a parable, because Asaph never gives a so what in, in this psalm. He never comes after this history and, and, and says, therefore, Israel, respond this way. Therefore, Israel, learn this truth. Therefore, Therefore, understand these things. He, he never does that. He simply lays out the story and just leaves it on the table for Israel to then be forced to, if they're really going to hear it, they need to reflect. If they're really going to hear the parable that he gives, if they're going to understand the truth, that it calls them into a deeper meditation on what is happening in this history. 
Now, there's probably a lot of connections that are happening between Psalm 78 and what's happening in Jesus' own day. But maybe the, the clearest thing that we see is that God's kingdom in the Old Testament scriptures came in a very unexpected way. God's kingdom came through sin and through rebellion, and yet in his mercy, God continued to advance his kingdom until finally the Davidic king came. That's where the psalm ends, is on, on the Davidic king, the shepherd king being established. And Asaph is calling the people to discern how the kingdom comes even then. Well, here's Jesus then, Matthew telling us that Jesus fulfilled this scripture. Jesus fulfilled Asaph saying, I'm going to open my mouth in a parable, and then telling this history. What Asaph did for Israel, Jesus does for us. He's the ultimate parable giver who calls us to understand the mysteries of how the kingdom comes. But we can only understand that through deep reflection. The reason that Jesus told parables was to see who would actually apply themselves to truly understand the kingdom mysteries that he was revealing. He didn't just spoon-feed truth to the people. No, the mysteries of the kingdom are revealed to all who truly seek them. He says in, in Matthew 7, whoever seeks, finds, right? Whoever seeks, finds. And, and, and here in the parables, he's, he's laying out truth that must be sought after. He's laying out truth that must be reflected on and pressed into. And so before we move into the explanation of the parables this morning, I, I want to ask you this. Do you desire to understand God's truth enough that you're willing to seek it out. Like, how much do you want to know? Do you desire to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God enough that you're willing to take time to reflect and to meditate and to ask questions and to apply yourself to what Jesus says? We just want truth to be easy for us, right? We just, we just want it to come straight to us with no extra thought required. But that's not what Jesus is doing. Jesus is purging the crowd, in a sense, as he gives these parables and, and saying, who, who of you really wants to know the mysteries of the kingdom? Because to do that, you need to press in even further. This is the mark of a true disciple. And this is exactly what we see the disciples themselves do next in verse 36. This leads to the last part of the passage, the explanation that Jesus gave. Verse 36, then he left the crowds, he went into the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. See, the disciples wanted to know, the disciples wanted to press in and understand the truths that he was giving to them. And they asked him to explain the parable of the weeds and the wheat. Now, out of the three parables that we saw today, this is the only one that we receive an explanation of, the first and the longest, but this doesn't leave us in the dark with the others. If we can understand the meaning of the first parable, it gives us the categories that we need to understand the second and third parables as well. And so let's read Jesus' explanation of the parable of the wheat and the weeds back in Matthew 13 now, verses 37 through 43. Here's Jesus' explanation of that first and longest parable. What does it mean? He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age. The reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. 
The Son of Man will send His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. All right, so there's a lot of meaning in this parable, isn't there? There's no less than nine points of comparison in this first parable. I'm going to go through them again for us. The sower represents the Son of Man, which is Jesus himself. The sower represents Jesus Christ. The field represents the entire world, which is under Jesus' lordship. So here is Jesus coming into the world, sowing good seed. The good seed represents the sons of the kingdom, believers, disciples of Jesus. Those, that's the seed that, that Jesus is planting in the world. The enemy that comes, he represents the devil who opposes Jesus, who opposes God, who opposes the kingdom of God. What does he do? He plants weeds, and the weeds represent the sons of the evil one, followers of the devil, unbelievers. That, that, that's, that's what happened when, when the enemy came. He planted uh, seeds of his kingdom in the, in the field that belongs to Jesus and, and, and where he had planted his own people. Well, the harvest then represents the end of the age and final judgment. The reapers represent angels who will gather all people at the end as agents of God's judgment. The burning of the weeds represents the punishment of hell for unbelievers, and the gathering of the wheat represents eternal and glorified life in the kingdom for sons of the kingdom. It's a lot of symbolism, isn't it? With all those points of symbolism in our minds, we can begin to understand what the parable means. And again, what, what these parables are teaching us is, is how the kingdom comes. Jesus is, Jesus is upending the wrong assumptions and expectations of the disciples about what they think is going to happen. And he's teaching them, here's what's actually going to happen. Here is how the kingdom comes. At this point, rest of the message, I'm going to put points on the, on the slides here for us to follow, just to, to, to help. But we have six different truths about how the kingdom comes that we see in these three parables. And we're going to see the first three based on this first parable. How does the kingdom come? And first, and simply, the kingdom comes through Jesus Christ. The kingdom comes through Jesus Christ. He is the sower. He is the farmer. This is his field. The whole world is his field, and he's planted a crop of disciples in this world that are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. They are sons of the kingdom. Jesus came in his ministry declaring the kingdom of heaven is at hand because he's the one who brings the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is established in Jesus Christ and through Jesus Christ. The disciples had this right. They, they, they were coming to believe and understand this is the promised Messiah. This is the one we've been waiting for who establishes the kingdom. Now here's where the surprise begins to enter. Number two, the kingdom comes through opposition. The kingdom comes through opposition. The disciples had a view of history where you had the evil age and then the kingdom would come, put an end to the evil age and begin the glorious eternal age of the kingdom of God. It was, it was evil up till the point of the kingdom being established, evil being removed and judged and God's people being in glory forever. And yet in this parable, that is not what we see. Jesus comes, he 
plants the sons of the kingdom in his field, so to speak. And yet, there's an overlap happening because the enemy is still active. The enemy has not yet been defeated and he comes and he plants weeds in that same field so that now you have you have God's people, God's citizens of the kingdom, growing alongside citizens of Satan's kingdom. Growing together at the same time, simultaneously in this world at once. There's, it's, it's an overlap of the ages that the New Testament reveals. This was a mystery that Jesus revealed that you see carried out throughout the entire rest of the Old Testament is that, is that the kingdom has come, but the end has not come. And that today there is both the kingdom's presence and, and the opposition of Satan. The enemy is opposing the kingdom of God. And then third principle we see here is that the kingdom comes through final judgment. And again, they, they understood this, but they misplaced when it would happen. Jesus does say, and he explains that, that a harvest day is coming. History is moving forward. There will be an end to this evil age. And when this end comes, there will be a judgment. And, and there will be a separation of those who belong to the kingdom of God and those who belong to the kingdom of Satan. There will be a separation. And those who have not repented of their sins and turned to Jesus Christ as the one who truly owns this field, those who have not turn to him, they will be judged with the eternal damnation of hell. He, he describes it in verse 41 and 42, that the angels will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and he will throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the end of all who belong to the kingdom of this world, who live right now in the kingdom of this world, who are, who are growing right alongside of believers. This is the end that will come to them. All causes of sin and all lawbreakers, anyone who has not repented of their sin, who is, who is living against the law of God, they will experience eternal judgment. And on that day, the righteous, the sons of the kingdom, those who have repented of their sins, trusted in Jesus Christ and what he has done in his death and resurrection, those are the righteous as they will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. They will be resurrected to a glorious, eternal life in the kingdom of God. This day will come through final judgment. This day will come through an inbreaking into history. A decisive moment in history where the kingdom of God fully breaks in, a separation occurs, and God's kingdom is established fully and forever. That day is coming. But that day is not right now. That day is not right now. And it's here, I want to pause before we go to the next three principles and say that th this is where our expectation can go wrong. We, we can easily believe that the kingdom can be here and now. We, we, we believe that this world can slowly, gradually become the kingdom of God through the spread of the gospel and through the influence of the church. 
And, and, and yet that's just not what Jesus depicts here, is it? He says that, that the kingdom and the sons of the kingdom will grow and, and, and the crop will increase. And yet at the very same time, there will be the presence of evil in this world until that decisive day. Until that moment when the harvest is ready and a separation occurs. That is when the kingdom will come. The kingdom is not here and now. And so we need to understand when we see evil in this world, when we see, when we see what looks like uh, culture winning, the, the, the world's cultures winning the culture wars, when we see um, nations raging against each other, when we see all these evils, we understand Jesus said it would be this way. The kingdom of Satan is thriving right alongside the, the church thriving. Those are happening simultaneously right now. And so we shouldn't be surprised or discouraged when evil seems present and active because one day that decisive moment will come but right now there's opposition now with that in mind we go to the next two parables we really can take them together they, they have one major similarity and then a, a minor difference but the major similarity is that they both emphasize the smallness of the kingdom's beginnings in comparison to the greatness of the kingdom in the end the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. The kingdom of heaven is like a little leaven. And yet, in both cases, that smallness becomes greatness. A tree for the birds to nest in. Three measures of flour permeated through with leaven. So this major similarity teaches us another truth of how the kingdom comes. Number four, the kingdom comes through apparent insignificance. The kingdom comes through apparent insignificance. And again, the disciples thought the kingdom was going to come in power. The kingdom was going to come in glory. The kingdom was going to, going to come on the scene in a, in a visible, identifiable way. They believed Jesus would do this. He, he is the one who establishes the kingdom of God, but the way that Jesus establishes the kingdom is apparently insignificant, just like a tiny mustard seed or a little bit of leaven. Think about it. Jesus was a carpenter's son from Galilee an itinerant preacher, a miracle worker who ended up being arrested, charged, flogged, put to death by Roman crucifixion. This is how the kingdom comes. This is the apparent insignificance of how the kingdom comes. This doesn't seem like the greatness of the kingdom of God, and yet from this small and apparently inconsequential beginning, from this moment of crucifixion of the king, from that moment, the kingdom becomes great. From that moment, the kingdom grows. And that leads to the, to the second aspect of these parables. Now, now, I said there's a minor difference in how they both picture the greatness of the kingdom. Uh, they both picture different aspects of this greatness. And so the image of a tree with branches for the birds to nest in, and we need to understand that comes straight from the Old Testament. We see it in the book of Daniel, where the greatness of the kingdom of Babylon is depicted in the same way. There, the birds of the air represent the nations that are coming to uh, be finding refuge in the kingdom of Babylon. But even in Daniel, the Lord says to the king of Babylon that your, this kingdom, which appears so great and glorious right now, it will be replaced by the kingdom of God. And here we see that image depicting the actual kingdom of God, which becomes a refuge for all the birds of the air, all the nations of the earth, 
And so here's what this parable is communicating about the, the greatness of the kingdom, is that, the, number five, the kingdom comes through outward expansion. The kingdom comes through outward expansion. Just as a mustard seed can become the largest of garden plants, and, and its branches extend out to, in different directions, and the birds of the air are, are, are making nests in all the branches, so the kingdom of God starts as a mustard seed. It starts with the death of Jesus Christ, but then he rises again. He commissions his disciples to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, and now the nations, as the gospel goes, are, are making nests in the branches. The kingdom is expanding outwardly. We've seen that throughout history. We've seen the kingdom go from Jerusalem through Samaria to Judea to the, to the ends of the earth and we're still expanding. The kingdom of God is coming. It's expanding. It's moving outward all across the world. And it has been for 2,000 years. The kingdom is growing by expanding to all nations. Starting as a little mustard seed. Now the, the second one, again, the, a, a little leaven. The greatness of the kingdom is pictured here because the leaven, the emphasis is not on extending out, but on its permeating from within. This is something that's growing on the outside, but it's something that's happening on the inside. It, it works its way through the entire batch of flour. And this teaches us the final truth this morning about how the kingdom comes. The kingdom of God comes through inward transformation. The greatness of the kingdom is not simply in how far out it reaches, but in how deeply it changes those who are part of it. The greatness of the kingdom is not simply in how far it reaches, but in how deeply it changes those who are part of it. Wherever the leaven is hidden, it works its way all the way through. The leaven, again, is the Life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This little leaven is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the word of the kingdom. And when that word of the kingdom is hidden in someone's heart, it permeates the heart and it transforms the life. When that leaven is hidden in the church, it transforms the church. It, it transforms us from the inside out. It permeates us. It affects every part of our lives. This is, how, this is the greatness of the kingdom. This is, this is the work that had this little beginning, this insignificant, weak, small beginning this, the, of, of, of a man crucified on a Roman cross and yet risen again, the gospel coming to you and me, it transforms us together. This is the greatness of the kingdom. Colossians describes both aspects of the greatness of the kingdom in this way in chapter 1. Paul says, to the Colossian church. He says, Of this you've heard before in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. The gospel has come to you. The kingdom has reached you. It's extended out to you. And it's doing that all over the world, and it's still working among you. It's still working in you. It's changing you to be more like Christ. This is, this is the way the kingdom advances now. And, and so here's the other side of the coin, in a sense. When, 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 on the one hand, we might fall prey to the error of believing that the kingdom is here and now. Believing that, that we can conquer the evil in this world. Believing that we can, we can transform the culture. We can Christianize everything. No, 
That's not going to happen until the day of judgment. But we can also believe and have the wrong thought that the kingdom is not growing, that the gospel's not moving, that people won't be changed. That's so far from the truth. The gospel is expanding outward and it's transforming everyone it reaches. We should expect the kingdom's growth in us and through us. And we should expect that one day the kingdom will finally and fully break in when Christ returns. When we pray, your kingdom come, this is what we're asking for. God, change me. Let the kingdom permeate my heart and my life so that I look more like a son of the kingdom. And we're praying, God, use me and use us to extend the message of the kingdom outward here and across the world so that more and more people can become part of this kingdom. And we're praying, come Lord Jesus, return and let us shine like the sun in the kingdom of your Father for eternity. That's what we're praying. We're living faithfully. Pray that we live faithfully as citizens of the kingdom here on earth until until that day.